My name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And it's not Shocktober anymore. So, but we have a Shocktober subject. To yeah, talk about. I, I mean, listen, folks, it's hard doing this podcast every week. Every now and then, an idea that was supposed to be the previous week ends up going to the next week because mm-hmm. life gets in the way. This doesn't necessarily have to be a Shocktober episode. Absolutely not. That's the thing about this subject critic robin wood is that we want to do him in shocktober because probably one of his most famous things is the work that he wrote about the horror film yeah robin wood he's a critic and a thinker whose work is vast and multifaceted he's written on so many things he's written famous acclaimed monographs on ingmar bergman howard hawks alfred hitchcock as well as such definitive i'm trying to figure out what word might be better than that but you know totemic books as hollywood from vietnam to reagan i think we thought that maybe if we focused on horror movies that might might give us a bit of a focus (laughs) that's true (laughs) but nope there will be no focus on the episode we're going to be bouncing all over the place but let's start at the beginning will where did you learn about robin wood oh robin wood i think i learned about him when i was in undergrad where i took cinema studies at the university of toronto and robin wood was a marxist film professor from york university which is not where i went but like he loomed large in toronto he's internationally known but he's one of british born british born but did uh, a lot of his mature work living and teaching in canada so canada feels a claim on him and he also started the magazine Cine Action, this long-running, I guess you might call it like Marxist film journal in Toronto. You know, when you say that Robin Wood is a very politically minded critic, and he would say that himself, there is a fear of like, oh no, is it going to be like Cade Cinema during their very <laughs> like ideological years? And it's, nope, he is very readable. And he's, I'm going to say this right now, one of the rare critics that you read, even on films that you're very well-versed in, he will bring something new for you to think about. I'll tell you what Robin Wood means to me. More than any critic, including probably even the great Jonathan Rosenbaum, Robin Wood made me understand on a deeper level that all films are ideological. Mm-hmm. That's a cliche thing to say, and we all know it. But he's the king of doing that kind of work. Yeah, and you read his work and you're like, oh, I get it. All films are ideological. Even when they don't mean to be, they are. And he made me understand, too, on a deeper way, how cinema represents the collective unconscious. And this is especially true of his writing on horror movies. I mean, horror is such a primal thing. If a horror movie is widely successful, kind of can't be argued with. Like, you might not like it, but it's hitting a nerve. What does that nerve say about society? And Robin Wood was a fan of horror films. Like, one of the big famous things that he did was that he hosted a retrospective uh, called The American Nightmare in 1977 that lasted from September 7th to September 15th, and they played something like 60 movies during that time. It was at the Bloor Cinema. Oh, man, I wish I was there. And you know who was there, though? Carpenter, Cronenberg. Wes Craven, De Palma, Toby Hooper, Romero, and Stephanie Rossman showed up to talk. Cronenberg, Cronenberg, who he didn't even like. No, he did not like Cronenberg. Uh, but anyway, he brought him and they and they talked. Can you imagine that happening and you're like, oh, I'm busy this weekend. I'll just do something else and maybe I'll get to it. I mean, we've done that so many times. So many, times. So many things. Yeah. But here's a quote just to give you an idea of where he was politically from the introduction to his book, Hollywood from Vietnam to Reagan. He wrote... To write politically about film means basically to write from an awareness of how individual films dramatize, as they inevitably must, the conflicts that characterize our culture, conflicts centered on class and wealth, gender, race, sexual orientation. For me, 
It is to commit oneself to the struggle for liberation that arises from those conflicts, the winning of which, that is, the victory for socialism and feminism, will be the only possible guarantee of our survival. So that's that's key. He's always looking for that. I love that introduction because it's a very clear eyed like, listen, these are my positions. I am not dogmatic about them. I know that there is no <laughs> position that I can take and just stand firm on because that would be incorrect. It's kind of like, you know, I, I may scare you by using these words, but this is the reason I do. And this is the understanding I want you to bring to the text. That introduction to that book is so incredible, too, because he essentially says, these are my positions. Now, this is why you won't hear these positions like, <laughs> yeah. anywhere. And he talks about how, like, OK, if you say that if you say that society is repressed, uh, the media might agree with that. But then if you say, well, the only viable alternative to this is Marxism, mm -hmm. you know, like the media, exists, you get shut down. The media exists to like not even dignify that. And so then if not Marxism, like, where do you go? Mm -hmm. But that's why he's such a smart critic, because he understands those positions and Instead of being like, all right, this is it. This is what I think. He's constantly questioning and going back and forth. Like even in that essay on Cronenberg uh, that he wrote, the infamous one where he's like, I'm against Cronenberg's first eight movies. These are the reasons why. He has a great line where he says, you know, people talk about how film is being destroyed by the Spielbergs and the Lucases because they're saying, oh, everything's okay. Like you should be happy. You should feel nostalgia even in the present. He's like, Cronenberg is the other side of that coin. Cronenberg is saying everything is miserable and nothing that you can do can change that. So you are stuck in normalcy, which is miserable for the rest of your life. Now, uh, you folks out there in Radioland, I don't know how you identify politically. Perhaps some of you are arch conservative. Uh, do you think that? I don't think arch conservative uh, listeners. You never know. Okay. Uh, but, but you know, I'd like to, I, I'm always trying to reach across the aisle mm -hmm. on this podcast. You know, <laughs> you're a real believer of compromise <laughs> and getting the bill through. But, you know, let's say you're a staunch believer in capitalism and the patriarchal family unit, which are his. <laughs> two big bugaboos yes does not care for these things i would say that we probably do not care for them very much at all either right will uh no um uh, although <laughs> although uh i grew you up love capitalism i grew up in a family unit and it, you did it treated me pretty well i think uh, that his argument though is the patriarchal yeah. family unit as the only thing and yes. to move beyond that that is horror that is scary uh, uh, yes absolutely again reaching across the aisle here uh, i'd like to make robin wood work for you too because let's say you're a staunch believer in these things does the destruction of those things sound frightening to you well then you would agree with him that that's how those horror movies work mm -hmm. like I, I feel like even if even if you're not like he's a radical critic even if you don't subscribe to his beliefs he's dead on in analyzing what makes a movie work you know in his essay about the american nightmare he kind of goes into the constructs of a horror movie what makes a horror movie work and what's interesting is that he's approaching it from a position not only of saying like oh these are the things that they're defining and that's why it's scary when they're broken but he's also going i like these things mm -hmm. like i enjoy them as i watch them i like to be challenged by them and to think about them so in that essay an introduction to the american horror film he identifies in progressive film criticism, these ideas popularized by Marx and Freud. So for Marx, you have the idea that there is a dominant ideology that is everywhere, and that is bourgeois capitalism. And from Freud, it's the idea that this ideology, capitalism, is perpetuated through the patriarchal nuclear family. Patriarchy obviously came before capitalism, but they work hand in hand now. And these are the forces that he would like to see overthrown. And I agree with him, but you can understand 
understand why when he kind of breaks down why the horror movies he loves tackles those ideas they do it in very radical ways or ways that are so extreme that it's impossible not to react to them well the thing about capitalism is because it's so all-pervading because it's so all around us and because the alternatives have been so beaten down people often cease to regard it as an ideology people think it's it's just just normalcy yeah it's it's the air yeah and so most horror movies he would argue or most movies he would argue movies in the Hollywood studio system, popular movies are reactionary in some way. They are about you've got normalcy and then there is a destruction of normalcy or a threat to normalcy. And then at the end, normalcy is restored. And that is, um, you know, the structure of a horror movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he talks about that, like the main thrust of a horror film is the idea of repression. Mm -hmm. And through this repression, that's where the horrors come out of. And the things that you fear, he makes a list of them uh, in the article. It's like other people, women, the proletariat. (laughs) And the proletariat is a good example of like, that's what the text chainsaw mass is about that these other people from the city come to you know the country where these you know inbred hicks are doing all this horrifying stuff and i can't believe that i have to interact with them in some way so he regards the monster as the return of the repressed now he acknowledges that a certain amount of repression is necessary and inescapable in a society you know unless we are to be kind of animals on Mm. the ground you know just just for just for the well-being of others we have to repress certain base instincts just to uphold a society but then there's another kind of repression he calls it surplus repression that is all about conforming to certain predetermined roles within the society within the culture that we're born into so in this culture in the culture that he was writing in it would be being a monogamous heterosexual capitalist oh yeah we buried the lead that robin wood was an openly gay film critic and not for his whole life no he wasn't and now this is essential to understanding him and his uh, philosophy because yeah he grew up in england in a repressed society in a repressed household i believe he was married to a woman i believe he had two kids as well yeah he came to the or he came out as gay when he was in middle age and this like there's a huge dividing line from before and after in fact his book his iconic book hitchcock's films he later did a sequel to it called hitchcock's films revisited where it's a complete rewriting of the book it's like it's the first it's the chapter he originally wrote about you know rope or Mm. psycho or whatever and then a second chapter responding to that review and in some cases amending it and i think that's also um very interesting in the work of robin wood is that he He's constantly kind of revising opinions as you go along, especially Mm -hmm. if you read the book that me and Will kind of tackled this week, which was a collection of his horror film essays. There's a chapter on David Cronenberg where, you know, he makes very valid points, like the fact that Shivers is terrified of sexuality. Not only that, but it also represents sexuality as homosexuality. Those are the things that are really scary. It's just not like normal day sexuality. It's the other. And oh man, the phalluses are going to come after us. But then if you keep reading the book, there's an essay on his adaptation of the Stephen King film, The Dead Zone. He's like, oh, I think this is an excellent film. So he's not dogmatic in his opinions on filmmakers. In that same essay in Cronenberg, he's like, I may have evaluated John Carpenter a little bit too highly because uh, he didn't really pan out as a filmmaker, in my opinion. Well, you know, important is the fact that he's not necessarily saying that all this stuff was determined. No. That when 
uh, David Cronenberg made these movies, he was consciously creating a conservative tract or something like that. No, he says that that the movies are worthless. He's not necessarily saying that either. No, he's saying that they are kind of an extension. And even in Cronenberg, a very pure one that you don't necessarily see in Carpenter of this kind of society, what has influenced David Cronenberg, who can articulate it in a way that Robin Wood found very uh, displeasurable because, like I said before, he wasn't offering anything else. It was just misery because that's the way that Cronenberg viewed the world. In his criticism, he also writes how repression is very closely linked to the idea of the other. And, you know, the other, as we all know, it's something that is external to our society. It's something that has sort of infiltrated our society. And in horror movies, he theorizes it often represents what is repressed by that society. In the essay, he uses an example, not of, not in horror movies, but in the Western and also kind of in foundational American myths of Puritan settlers versus indigenous peoples. He writes, the Puritans, and uh, pardon, there's some dated terminology in this, but he says, the Puritans rejected any perception that the Indians had a culture, a civilization of their own. They perceived them as not merely savage, but literally as devils or the spawn of the devil. And since the devil and sexuality were inextricably linked in the Puritan consciousness, they perceived them as sexually promiscuous. So this, as he writes there, this is a pretty extreme example of projecting everything that you repress onto this other and you know having the other become this like extension of your own self-loathing i should ask that while you were reading this essay was there anything that you disagreed with where you're like nah, i don't think that's true i don't think i would say so i mean there are things that you there are things you can see him like taking a little bit of a leap on the example i'm going to use is when he's talking about how there are certain categories of other like mm-hmm. women gay people the proletariat I actually kind of agree with this point, but it's also a bit of a leap where he says, if you take James Whale's 1931 Frankenstein, it's telling that the monster is not dressed as an upper class person. He's dressed as like a worker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, it's a it's a bit of a leap. Eh, you know, but, what? But, there's something, but there's something to it. Yeah. I mean, and just think that this is all unthinking stuff. This is. James Whale or Robert Flory and their crew are sort of like, okay, what should what should a monster look like? He should have rags on. Well, rags are monstrous because they're lower tier, yeah, low it's class. The associations we make in our mind that, you know, it, we just accept it because that's the way the world works. Even as something as simple as, like, why do you dress some horror characters in red, for example, I'm thinking of like, don't look now. Not only does it pop in that way, you also associate it with blood and you may not necessarily make that link in your head when you're doing that kind of set dressing. I mean, I'm sure Nicholas Rogue did in that situation, but like in a day to day one, it's just something like, oh no, I don't like that color of red. It just doesn't really fit here. And that's because there's everything that's been baked in since you were, you know, you took your first breath and lived in this society. Uh, Was there anything in there that you disagreed with? Not really. Sometimes I will have that knee-jerk reaction when he does make those leaps and then he'll find a qualification that whether i agree with it or not i can see him doing the work there and i do find while his work is very approachable it is within the context of the academic structure so when you read it sometimes i'm like oh man come on okay i I see what you mean (laughs) i miss that you know readability of someone like jonathan rosenbaum only because of the stuff that robin wood is tackling it's not critical in the sense of i am discussing this if is it good or not should you see it here are the values of it it is 
like literary criticism within a university context. He, well, yeah, and it's also it's not a consumer report review. Exactly. It's, it's, it's a this will be a big hit in the sticks. <laughs> yeah, it's not saying whether or not you will find the movie entertaining. Mm-hmm. It's saying what is the ideology that this movie expresses. I mean, he talks about pleasure at one point and says, you know, movies are often meant to deliver pleasure, but it's a very complicated idea. He says, I saw Return of the Jedi. I laughed. I cried. I was with it. But at the end, I did not enjoy the movie because I felt the manipulation behind it. And because of that, I had a reaction to it, which was not a positive one. Yeah. I mean, maybe you'll disagree with that. I don't know. Oh, yeah, uh, I disagree with that. Yeah, that's true. I, I actually agree with him on that. But that's just me. But one of his central ideas is the return of the repressed. The repressed, he often characterizes it as uh, in sexual terms. Mm. It's like this society that's founded on heterosexual monogamous family unit is going to have this enormous excess of sexual energy that gets buried somewhere, and it's gonna gonna need to gonna need to pop somewhere. In horror movies, that often manifests itself as the monster, and you may agree to what extent the monster is actually sex, and to what extent it's uh, something else. It's always sex. It's always you're right. Michael what I penetrating King Kong. You know. Know, wants to fuck the Fay Ray. You know, all there. you're right. It is always sex. I mean, he uses the example of Robert Flory's murders in the Rue Morgue, and it's mm-hmm. like, yep, you got it. <laughs> I mean, it's right there. In his conception, a reactionary horror film offers, quote, the pretense that the released forces can be effectively overpowered or destroyed and that traditional order can be restored, unquote. Whereas a progressive one implies that the norms by which we have lived must be destroyed and a radically new form of organization, political, social, ideological, sexual, must be constructed. And if that doesn't happen, you have the end of the world. Mm -hmm. Think about that. There are so many 1950s alien invasion movies where, like, obviously the alien... Communism! Yeah, the alien invaders of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And they get beaten back, like the original War of the Worlds from the 1950s. Uh, That's one where they pray the communists away, basically. Or even something like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which that has to go with the end of the world because you can't tell them apart and there's nothing that you can do. They're already there. That's Could right. Could be you. Then there's something like the George A. Romero zombie movies, which, I mean, especially Night of the Living Dead, it, it doesn't fit in any perfect, like, well, Marxist he syllabus. Well, makes but... the argument that society has been destroyed, so all of the disparate people come together and have to build something new from that. And what you see in Dawn of the Dead is, here are these people in a shopping mall, society is destroyed, destroyed around them and for a while they try to essentially recreate society in the shopping mall they try to recreate that patriarchal unit and they have everything they could ever want but then you know it just leads to depression because there is no change there's no challenge there is just this but when that is threatened you must do everything in your power to keep hold of it, even if it means death. And then there's Night of the Living Dead, where it's such an interesting example of like the family unit and the patriarch in that get like torn apart from within while the <laughs> I mean, black yeah. guy. Robin Wood's like, literally, uh, George Romero wanted to make sure you got it. So he has the daughter <laughs> kill her father right there on screen. Although, you know, what's funny about that movie. I mean, so much of what's interesting about that movie was kind of accidental, at least ideologically. So but, th- the father was right. They should or, or they should have hit in the basement. <laughs> oh, yeah. From the, no, but they would have been killed by the daughter. Oh, that's true. And nothing is accidental, Will, because the structure of society is defining what's going into the movie. Another film maker that he was so good on was Larry Cohen. Ooh, favorite of the podcast. Yeah, Larry Cohen, a director of such classic films as It's Alive and The Stuff and Cue the Winged Serpent. I mean, Robin Wood makes an 
excellent point that It's Alive is a more interesting film than The Brood because It's Alive actually tackles the idea of the monstrous child in a much more complex way. Yeah, it is perhaps a more interesting film. Is it a better film? I don't know. Well, Robin Wood would say so, especially that he makes the argument that, you know, It's Alive is a much scrappier by the seat of your pants film, while Cronenberg has a very cold, calculated, also bigger budget. That's true. I mean, I know which one I like better. And and it's Larry Larry Cohen. (laughs) I don't know. I I just I I like the Larry Cohen one better myself, too. But I mean, I respect the craft of the Cronenberg one more. Yeah, but but it's also, you know, a little misogynistic. It's a little misogynistic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, in Larry Cohen's films, Robin Wood sees certain themes recur. There's no hero, no quote unquote hero in the films. No one is glorified. No one is perfectly right. You know, normally implicit in a horror movie is a dichotomy between the human and the monster. But in Larry Cohen's films, there's a constant intermingling of these two. The two are two sides of the same coin and nothing is resolved at the end. There's no, At the end, there's not the reassurance that, well, actually, Dr. Frankenstein is better than the monster, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, It's Alive ends with... The monster is dead. There's more monsters on their way. <laughs> There's no way around it. It is not something that can be solved. And like you said, order can be restored. It's now that this horror has been, you know, uh, shown to the world, it will exist in it forever. It's interesting. When I was doing some research, some some basic cursory Internet research on Robin Wood this week, of course, the first things that I saw were the obituaries that were published when he passed away in 2009. And overwhelmingly the new york times obituary is a good example like its headline is robin wood film critic who wrote on hitchcock dies in 78 they say he wrote all these books about ingmar bergman and hawks uh, and then you know he wrote a lot of left-wing criticism too they don't emphasize the radical side of him they they emphasize just more the fact that oh yeah he wrote these books about filmmakers that you knew uh yeah i mean that is you know uh the big business trying to put down the fact <laughs> trying that... to put down you know the the, <laughs> the Truth, the truth. Because every single word that he wrote was steeped. I mean, you know, from a certain point. He admits himself that early on he was a bourgeois <laughs> uh, film critic. Just like us. Yeah, <laughs> uh, 100% like us. <laughs> and he was approaching it from that perspective. And it was only later on that he started to take a more radical view on the stuff that he was consuming and could easily put it on a page in a way to make a bigger audience understand. I think I realized looking back when I was first reading Hollywood from Vietnam, to Reagan, I realized that, you know, in my early 20s, what was challenging about it was the fact that it presented ideology as so oppressive, so all pervading. Like it is so it is to me such an intensely readable book. That intro is like such a roller coaster that it takes you on of like, here's everything that's wrong with society. And and here's why here's why you're not going to hear this anywhere else, basically. And the whole book is like that. And it can become it can become kind of overwhelming. It can become scary if you haven't thought about that all that much. I mean, I loved it then and I love it even more now. And his chapter on Steven Spielberg and George Lucas is a perfect example about this, because, you know, those are the two most popular filmmakers of the 80s, the people who really set the template. And essentially, you know, he was quite an opponent of Steven Spielberg. And folks, put aside for a moment how much you enjoy Spielberg's movies. Of course, we all enjoy Spielberg's movies. Uh, they're fun. No, know. Will, you hate them. I've heard you on podcasts say that. <laughs> uh, no, I, I hate him. I like his movies. <laughs> Jurassic Park is a ton of fun. <laughs> I think that Spielberg is a very affable, um, doesn't think about much of what he's doing kind of guy. I agree. If yeah. you're here right now, I'd shake his hand and, and <laughs> say I admire him. Thank you for all the joy you brought me in my life and that would be very true yeah Uh, but anyway put all that aside and just consider how those movies so many of them are about the restoration of the father Mm -hmm. that's something he writes about 
or think about how they regard the other. When the other is sympathetic in those Golden Age Spielberg movies, uh, in the case of E.T., for example, he's fundamentally unthreatening. He's not going to change society. That Obviously, Spielberg's not thinking about that, but Spielberg is the most popular filmmaker ever, and he occupies such disproportionate weight on film history. And, and why is that? It's because... Like, he tells certain kinds of stories. No, it's the way that he moves his camera, Will. Well, there's that too, yes. No, but you're 100% <laughs> right. It's, Spielberg, none of his films are really challenging you, right? <laughs> like, they're giving you even the toughest ones, like Schindler's List and Amistad, they're giving you a comforting feeling. <laughs> like, they rarely, uh, you know, maybe Munich at the end, which does end in yeah. that note of uh, misery. Mu- you're right, Munich is kind of the most challenging one in that regard, but so many of those historical ones, like Lincoln is another example, he he has such faith in these institutions. Mm-hmm. He has such faith in humankind. Why would he say. doubt the institutions? They've worked in his favor. <laughs> he's uh, like the biggest director ever. Yeah, of course. And so all of his movies are about like he's trying to reconcile why did this horrible atrocity, whether it's slavery or the Holocaust, <laughs> happen if my life is great? <laughs> yeah, yeah. How did this happen? And then he's like, well, here's the story of the people who write in it. Mm-hmm. Here's the people of the Washington Post who, you know, told Richard Nixon that he couldn't do that shit. Here's the story of all those senators who who ended slavery. Wait, have you heard the story that Robert Zemeckis says in the used cars commentary where when Steven Spielberg watched the cut of used cars, he was like, wait but the politician is corrupt? And Robert Zemeckis is like, as if Spielberg could not imagine this in his head. <laughs> I mean, that's incredible. And I mean... That, that is almost too obvious. <laughs> yeah, in a weird way, that makes me like Spielberg more, just because just because it's like, okay, he, he really and truly is that. Oh, he you does. Yeah. There's a story of an assistant director in, I think, 1941. Spielberg's like, I'm taking you out for supper. And then they went to McDonald's. <laughs> like, uh, this big, you know, film production. Okay, you know what? I say it makes me like Spielberg more, but actually it doesn't really because it's like if you were at the level that he is at i mean this guy is one of the one of the top of the top he, like he should know what he's doing more than I that. mean you look at a film like <laughs> Ready Player One Spielberg clearly does not know what he's doing <laughs> like, that is a movie made from someone completely disconnected from any kind of outside reality than his own bubble but folks if you're interested in where to start with Robin Wood literally any of his books I mean I think Hollywood from Vietnam to Reagan is the one that a lot of people start with it's a perfect summary of his philosophy and he talks about lots of movies you've seen Hitchcock Revisited is probably his most famous book because it's the one that people reach for when you want that kind of, you know, analysis of Hitchcock has not been top since then, I don't think. Yeah. And Robin Wood on the horror film mm-hmm. has a lot of really fun stuff in it, too. And you should also check out Sexual Politics and Narrative Film because that has a great essay on Mandingo. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He has a very great deconstruction of why the movie is as powerful as it is within the context that it was made. And I think Robin Wood, I really like him when he's doing that kind of like championing those Mm -hmm. indie films. In one of his later essay collections, there's a long essay about a forgotten Canadian film called Fireworks Mm -hmm. that I remember being like, wow, he wrote this much about it. And then I went and saw the movie and it has been completely wiped off the map. It is almost impossible to see, which makes you wonder like, oh, I wish he could have just like championed a few more of these. Like you look at that a list of movies that he showed at the American Nightmare Symposium that he did, and you're like, 
whoa, like he got them all. Like all the important ones were right there and they were still at the level that they would come and talk about them, except Stephanie Rothman. But that's only because her career essentially ended mm-hmm. basically after the movies that they showed, like The Velvet Vampire and uh, Terminal Island. Oh, you asked me if I disagree with him on anything. And actually I do. I don't think Diary of the Dead was as good as he thought it was. <laughs> well, he's a little bit kind of like, what are these movies trying to say? And as you read the essay, yeah. he kind of convinces himself by the end of it. <laughs> so as per usual, you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com so our first letter is from scott morris and he goes hey justin and will this will be my third letter hope you guys are keeping track of the power rankings of letter writers so that this information matters anyway i just have two questions to ask it's a dubious honor to have written the most <laughs> letters to the important cinema club but anyway thank you what do you think of lon cheney jr of all the classic horror icons he's the least beloved by a pretty wide margin and while i routinely have the thought that i want to put on a Bella or a Cushing, I have never once had this thought for Lon Chaney Jr. and suspect most have it. Though I do love him in The Wolfman, does he deserve to be an Alsoran, or is there more to him than his name? That's an interesting question, Lon Chaney Jr. I love Lon Chaney. Yeah, I love Lon Chaney Jr., but I agree. I never put on a Lon Chaney Jr. movie because he's in it. But there is a kind of desperation and that, you know, real Lenny energy that he had of in of Mice and Men that like he's not a leading man. So if you look at like the Inner Sanctum series that he did, where he's trying to play all these different roles, even if it doesn't work, there's a kind of aura around him that I enjoy. And as a Wolfman, a kind of quiet, let's say drunken desperation sometimes in the late period. Well, even in the first Wolfman movie, I think he's very good. He has that. There's a sadness to him. He's very good at that side. I mean, what he doesn't give you is like the big hammy theatrics that a Bella or a mm-hmm. Boris does. I mean, that's what we like. We like the big personalities, don't we, folks? Yeah, that are very easily definable. And then when I think of Lon Chaney Jr., I think of sad and desperate in The Wolfman. <laughs> and there were so many movies in the 40s when Universal just put him in roles that like, I mean, Son of Dracula, for instance, that's not what he was born for. He was not born to be the suave count. He was born to be a sad man. Mm-hmm. And uh, later as his career went on, have you seen The Indestructible Man? Yes. I've also seen Lon Chaney Jr. in Dracula versus Frankenstein. You're right. Maybe that's the one. You see, I chose The Indestructible Man. You because... didn't want to take him to the point where he cannot talk anymore? Well, because in The Indestructible Man, he's still good. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's at that sweet spot where he's still, I think, delivering a good performance, but also like the ravages of alcohol are really, really showing mm-hmm. on his face too, enhancing his performance. <laughs> but then by the time you get to Dracula versus Frankenstein, he's just like, wasn't there, didn't somebody have a story? Was it Gary Graver who said that like they would hear Lon Chaney just say, I want to die. Oh my God. <laughs> that sounds about just, right. Because was, was he the one who was doing like anti-smoking ads like later on? Oh, or was maybe. it somebody else on that set? Sorry. Dragon vs. Frankenstein was a set of geriatric horror performers. Because there was also J. Carol Nash <laughs> yeah, in it. Yeah. On the edge of death. The second question goes, I was listening to you guys discuss ghost directors on the Robert Flory episode. I wondered, suppose Edgar G. Elmer didn't have detour do we still have the legend of edgar g elmer would the french critic have latched on to some other movie of his as the masterpiece do you think a cult could be mustered for every studio workhorse from that era who directed dozens of movies if they had a story as good as elmer's i would say no you need that elmer story yeah you well you need the elmer story but then also you need a story around every cult director because mm-hmm. art does not exist in a vacuum art is informed by the, the story around it. I mean, would anything Jean-Luc Godard made after Breathless mean anything if or mean as much if Breathless didn't exist? No, it's because it's part of the same continuum that started with that in the same way that 
The Black Cat is interesting. Detour is interesting. Uh, St. Benny the Dip is interesting <laughs> to some degree because it, sp- it started, the continuum started with him working for Max Reinhardt in Germany. There could be an argument, though, that the man from Planet X did, it, you know, kind of drill itself in a lot of kids' head who didn't know what Detour was. So that could have been a starting point to discover his other work. Also, the Black Cat, I think, would have oh, been amazing. A, yeah, would have been a classic. And like those sets. I mean, come I on. I mean, but then there's that Robert Flory argument, right? Which is like Robert Flory. I think Murder of the Rue Morgue is great. Mm-hmm. And it does a lot of stuff that Detour does as well. Even the Black Cat is doing. But he just never had those that weirdness in his other films, as we discussed in the episode. I guess. Although, man, Robert Flory... Robert Flory made some good ones. He did, but he made a lot of them. He made a lot of them. Edgar G. Ulmer made a lot as well, but not as many as Robert Flory, which makes the kind of digging into it very difficult. Anyway, it definitely helps to have two masterpieces as opposed to one. And definitely, I think Edgar G. Ulmer, his story is helped a lot by the story of his life. But yeah, just just turn on Man from Planet X and then turn on Carnegie Hall and then you'll see like there's something there. There's a ghost in the machine in both those movies. Yeah, it's not just Detour and then Little Wisps. Like you can watch even Club Havana. Like that's a great movie. Yeah. So it's always kind of there. So thank you for that letter. Our next even one- in the naked Venus is there, <laughs> you know? <laughs> But then, you know, we'll be the first one to say Edgar G. Elmer, that those late period films. Woo boy. Yeah, I'm not saying they're all the best <laughs> yeah. movie ever. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the next letter is from Michael Gallagher and he goes, Western book recommendations? Hey, Justin and Will. This isn't a question for the show, but more a question drawing on the great books recommendations you give on the podcast. Do you have any favorite books on Poverty Row or Westerns of the 50s? Like Anthony Mann, Bud Bedecker, Jack Tulnar. My Google searches have been coming up flat and I figured you guys would be a great resource. Regardless, keep up the great work. Best regards. Mike. Oh, well, what's that great book? The one that Scarecrow Press put out that whose name I'm forgetting? Black Hat. Uh, oh, White Hat. Black Hat, White Hat. I mean, that's a great book. That is an excellent book on Poverty Row Westerns because it's written by a guy who wrote a few, but he basically uses the book as an excuse to give histories on every Western star that he ever met. You know, one that I use just as a resource, and I'm not really recommending it because it's not a great book or anything, but I've got a book called Riders on the Range or Riders of the Range. It just has like little biographies of like all the Western guys from John Wayne all the way down to uh, the, the Melody Kid or whatever. Sometimes I'll just pick it up off the shelf like, oh yeah, who is that guy? And I'll flip to it. Oh yeah, yeah, he's that guy. Well, one of the big books when it comes to westerns is the westerns by william k everson mm. who our good friend leonard malton <laughs> if yeah. you listen to the, the third <laughs> member of the podcast um he cites william k everson as like the movie geek of movie geeks that he knew everything mm-hmm. and that malton would go to him if he had any questions about like an obscure star and it's right there in the book me and will we went to use bookstore and i picked up a copy and the guy behind the counter was like oh great book mm-hmm. <laughs> mine's falling apart so if you want like kind of a global look at the westerns there's that one and one that I haven't read, but again, our good friend Leonard did recommend is Hollywood Corral, a comprehensive B-Western roundup written by Don Miller, who is the author of a book me and Will recently read called B-Movies, which was a deep dive into like just B-movies, but not the ones you know, ones that have been forgotten, played on double bills in the 50s and the 40s. There. How about that for an answer? You can always depend on us. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, I hope that book comes back into print because it looks great. 
forward by Gene Autry. That's how you know that it's good. Nice. <laughs> but it's currently going for $74 on Amazon. So, yeah. So I hope there's some books there that you can check out. And uh, yeah, I mean, well, well, we got to do more Western episodes. I agree. I, I really like Westerns. We and... should pick some cowboys. Like, let's. We should do like a Gene Autry or a. Uh... Yeah, or um, they all fucking blur together for yeah, me. Yeah, singing cowboy. Uh, Why can't I think of Hop along Cassidy. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> was Gene Autry the one that had Trigger? <laughs> uh, I think so. That would give us a reason to watch uh, movies by that director that we really, really like, William Whitney. And if you have a question, again, you can send it to us at Import Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. Oh, and by the way, correct. Correction, correction, correction. Gene Autry did not have Trigger. That was Roy Rogers. That's what I was thinking. I'm like, it's R. It's R. Ro- Roy Rogers, yes. I think that me and Will, though, like those movies were never on television. Never like, on I television. I never watched them, when ever. I, whenever I've watched a Roy Rogers Western, I have enjoyed it. Yes. It's been very fun. And it's been on, like a Kino Blu-ray yeah. where you can see that Republic color and all mm. of its uh, unreality. So this week on our Patreon, we did a poll for $10 Patreon subscribers, and you guys picked for us to talk about Phantasm. So that's what we do. That's right. Phantasm, the classic American regional horror film by Don Coscarelli. And also, I think we're going to do another Patreon episode this week just to just to kind of make out for things. Mm-hmm. We were had a bit of a delay. So we're going to talk about New York Ninja. Yeah, that's right. Recently released by Vinegar Syndrome. And it is a film that was unfinished and they actually had to re-edit it without a script and also dub it with a bunch of very famous B actors. Does it work? It does. That's why we're talking about it. And I kind of want to talk about that and the idea of reconstructing films without the original filmmaker being present. Does it make sense? Is it just a bastardization of it? Well, you have to check out the Patreon episode to find out. $5 a month, patreon.com slash important cinema club, and you get the whole back catalog of Patreon episodes. Way too many for you to listen to, but they're all there. Well, next week, well, we're back on schedule. It's time to talk about Max Ophuls. Yes, let's do it. We were going to do it a month and a half ago, and now we're really going to do it. We already watched some movies. That's right. I forgot about them. Well, yeah, maybe watch I know. Them again. I'm going to watch uh, Lola Montez on like two and a half times speed again, just to <laughs> remember what happened in it. <laughs> this was the famous director who was all about the tracking shot, tried to make it into Hollywood, made a bunch of films, didn't work out, went back, became an international filmmaker. But there's themes. He's a no-tur. I'm excited to tackle it, even though it's a big subject. So that's what we'll be doing next week. Until then, my name is Justin Glue. And until next week, the balcony is closed. No! Oh, man, that hasn't made an appearance in a long time. <laughs> I'm Will Sloan. Robin Wood would love you to end an episode about <laughs> which the balcony is closed. Hello, it's me, the Grinch. Or at least I think it's the Grinch. I don't remember what voice I used to have in the Jim Carrey movie. Probably something close to this, right? I just want to thank the new Patreon subscribers of the Important Cinema Club, which include Michael Knotts, Alex Honeydew, Brandon Lilly, Ryan Dorfler, Ty Trulinger, W. Parker, Sean McSkill, Warble Flutter, Matt Collins, Daniel Port, David Sicey, Mila Stanisic, and Joshua Gonzalez. Thank you all from The Grinch for becoming patrons of the Important Cinema Club, a podcast that I love. Or hate. I'm not sure. Is the Grinch like Bizarro? (laughs) I know this is not the voice that he has, but he does now for copyright reasons. 
And coming from me, the Grinch, if you haven't given a review to the Important Cinema Club, please do. It would be very much appreciated. And we now return you, Grinchily, that's something I do, right? Make puns about my name to the show. Well, you know, talking to Leonard Malton last week really whetted my appetite to dip back into the Wheeler and Woolsey catalog. <laughs> I loved how fired up he got. He's like, yeah, I just like the ones that everybody likes. <laughs> <laughs> So Wheeler and Woolsey, for those who don't know, they were a beloved comedy duo from the early 30s. They worked all through the 30s. They were RKO's bread and butter, just churning out kind of B-level comedies. And the thing about Wheeler and Woolsey is every six months or so, I'll watch one because the Marx Brothers only made like 12 movies and only half of them are good. Mm -hmm. But Wheeler and Woolsey made, I don't know, 500 movies. They just one after another. They were uh, the duo that kind of got kickstarted the Hollywood musical trend as well in films that are not very good, but they were right there. Yeah, and you got Woolsey, he's kind of like Groucho, he's got a big cigar, and you got Wheeler, he's, um... God, I've seen like 10 of these and I still don't can't quite get my can't quite get a handle on what Wheeler is. I, is he I, a Frady cat? I, think? I remember when we watched um, some of their movies for a long time episode, an, an early episode, yeah, a very early episode that I was actually kind of impressed by the level of visual gaggery on display, almost a surreal man magazine style. Well, in that one, I think we watched Diplomaniacs and that one had a fun gag in it. I mean, it has a lot of racism in it, but mm. it had a fun gag in it where the villain is like we have to get a vamp to seduce these boys you know and he like picks up the phone and he's like can you please send over a vamp and then there's like like a slide where she just like comes <laughs> yes. down like and That's she's real wrapped hell's up a pop in action. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah i guess it, they're difficult to love because of the lack of true personality there right well i sometimes wonder you know, there were some comedians like Abbott and Costello and the Three Stooges who just got on TV a lot. The Bowery Boys were like that, too. They were just on TV, <laughs> like nonstop when our parents were kids. And mm. so, you know, our parents perpetuated it. We I were, mean, it, listen, if the Bowery Boys are popular, <laughs> if Wheeler Woosley was on TV all the time. That's the thing. Uh, Woolsey maniacs out there. I do think Robert Woolsey, I do think is funnier than Leo Gorsi. And you know what? <laughs> so is Burt Wheeler. Yeah, I would agree with you. And they were actually working in studio pictures as well, as opposed to somebody like the Ritz brothers. But uh, yeah, um, what are we doing on our episode on the Ritz brothers? We should, but what is there to say about them? They Didn't just we do a whole Patreon episode on the gorilla, I believe. Well, we put it on our three stooges Blu-ray. <laughs> oh, I think right. that's when we talked about it. We might've done a Patreon. I can't folks. You cannot expect me to remember what we've done on the Patreon. But Wheeler and Woolsey, though, when you look at the filmmakers they worked with, it also has that Marx brother like, oh, boy, look at this studio hack, Norman Turok. Oh, man. So I was watching Hold'em Jail this week yep. from 1932. I'm at a point, I'm in a higher plane of cinephilia than most ordinary mortals because I'm looking at the credits of a Wheeler and Woolsey movie and I'm just getting psyched up with each new Wait, name. Did you get psyched up when you saw Norman Turog, the yep. director of the Jerry Lewis films nobody likes? So, yeah, I mean, first I saw S.J. Perlman co-wrote the script and it's like, oh, man. He's a famous uh, comedian. Didn't he do the Marx Brothers? Uh... Yeah. I mean, he was he's best known as like a New Yorker writer, mm -hmm. a humorist. Uh, Woody Allen was greatly influenced by S.J. Perlman, for example. But yeah, he co-wrote some of the Marx Brothers films. And so I saw his name. and I was like, oh, that's great. And then you see the cast and it's like, oh, man, Edgar Kennedy's in this. <laughs> Hell yes. The, the lemonade salesman from Duck Soup. And then. Directed by Norman Tarog, I saw that name and I thought, holy shit, this guy was around forever. 
how many movies did Norman Torog make? Because not only did he do those Martin and Lewis movies, I have a book about Norman Torog called... I can't believe you have a book about Norman Torog. Bear Manor Media, baby. They put it out. Oh, boy. I look at those Bear Manor Media ads at the end of Shock Cinema, and I'm like... How many copies could they sell of, like, <laughs> the script for Inner Sanctum, episode five? <laughs> the book is called Elvis's Favorite Director, which is all you need to know. It tells you that he, you know, went from Wheeler and Woolsey all the way to Elvis. And also, if you made Isn't Elvis this movies. the image of the director you would imagine when you hear the name Norman Turok, the things that he's directed? I'm just showing Will the letterbox image. Yeah, yeah. I've got it up, too, here. I mean, I see his picture and he looks like Otto Preminger. <laughs> Do you think he was that um, hard on the actors and the pictures that he made? Well, you can't argue with the results if he was, because he made Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine. He made, uh, oh yeah, man, a lot of crap. V- visit to a Small Planet, The Stooge, all those, all those like lesser Martin and Lewis movies. Living it up, living oh, it man. up's okay, but partners, uh, you're never too young. He directed so many Martin Lewis films. It's fascinating to also look like what is popular on his filmography because you can see through Letterbox. It's Blue Hawaii. Number Number one, Boys Town, number two, uh, 1938, Spencer Tracy, Mickey Rooney. <laughs> and then third, yeah, the Broadway Melody of 1940. So yeah, when Blue Hawaii with Elvis is your number one, you see that and it's like, okay, not a lot of classics. I can move on. But I don't know. I love Norman Tarrick's career. I don't love the movies, but I love his career <laughs> just because he's, I like a guy like that who has directed a lot of different things from a lot of different eras. If you got a guy who was directing Wheeler and Woolsey and then he became like Elvis's house director and he was Martin and Lewis's house director, that's three cool things right there. He did Mickey and Judy movies. So an episode on Norman Torah coming up. Let's do it. (laughs)